Um, it's great to, uh, it's a privilege to be sharing uh, the Word of God with you guys. So Romans has always been one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, so today we're actually going to start with a quiz. Um, next slide, please. Um, yeah. Ah, no, no, no. Ah, okay. It's supposed to um, just display the picture and not the, the names and stuff. Well, anyhow, uh, now you know who it is. Okay, so the next slide, please. I was going to go, hey, I'll test you guys. Um, so next slide, actually. Yeah, okay. So I'm sure you, you probably have seen this guy uh, somewhere before, right? His name is um, Gregory Rasputin. Um, he's an infamous Russian monk, and uh, he was a spiritual healer and kind of like a chaplain to the last reigning emperor of Russia. Um, and his life was mostly known as a life filled with religion, drunkenness, and debauchery. Now, much has been made in popular culture about this guy's wickedness, but very few people actually knew about his theology. Rasputin, according to uh, the British commentator, was known as somebody who believed this. He believed that a sinner who continues to sin with, a, with abandonment enjoys, each time he repents, more of God's for- forgiving grace than any ordinary sinner. So basically what this guy thinks is that, that the more you, you sin, and because God is a forgiving God, you're actually ex- extracting more grace from God. Now, Ross Burton was not alone. Plenty of people would have reached similar conclusions after misreading the previous chapter, Romans 5, especially the last verse where Paul compared the effects of Adam's disobedience with Christ's work on the cross. And there he concludes that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Basically, Paul is saying, despite the fact that sin has increased with the introduction of the Old Testament laws, there is always more grace in Christ to save us. In the end, grace always wins. That immediately begs the question, doesn't it? It begs the question that if God is going to forgive us anyways, how does it matter? Why does it matter how we live our lives? And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is offering a correction to the likes of Rasputin. Here he is saying that that had you stopped reading the Bible at the end of chapter 5 of Romans, what you have is not the complete gospel, but a soundbite of the gospel. Because the gospel is also about anchoring our identity in Christ. Without this aspect, the Christian life will always be misunderstood. So in today's sermon, we've got three points. Uh, You can actually (laughs) uh, actually just blank it off. Yeah, I don't know. Press B. (laughs) Go back. Yeah, go back. Yeah. And uh, just just blank it off. Press B. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. So, uh, So today's sermon has three parts. The first part is why is identity important? Verse one, verses one to four. The second part is the price of identifying with Christ, and lastly, the prize of identifying with Christ. So, have a look at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? You know, here he actually acknowledges the controversy raised in the previous section. I love the fact that Paul often re- employs this rhetorical device where he impersonates the objector. 
It shows that he's actually aware of the issues. He's ready to take the issues head on. And he says in the next half of this verse, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, now that a Christian's eternity is secured in Christ, can we just do whatever we want now? So what does Paul say in the next verse? He says, by no means. And, and in the original language, this is actually the strongest sense possible in the Greek language. I think plain Australian English, it probably translates to something like, nah, mate, not a chance. And then starting from verse 3, Paul explains the problem with this view by invoking the rite of baptism. He says, Oh, don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Firstly, by using don't you know, Paul is appealing to their own experience. He's saying, don't you remember from your own baptisms? Then Paul began to use the word baptized in a very interesting way. He's not referring to the ritual of baptism, but he's using it metaphorically, like a symbol. So what is a symbol, guys? A symbol is something with an outward sign, but pointing to an inward reality. Let's break down the ritual of baptism and see how much meaning is encapsulated in this ritual. Have a look at this um, next picture. You can press next. Yeah, so, so firstly, you've got the water. You can press that. And the water basically means cleansing and birth. And then it's the act of going under. Next. And it basically means burial and death. And then you come out of the water, which symbolizes re resurrection. And the whole thing is done publicly. So it's a public declaration of one's allegiance to Christ. So by invoking the symbol of baptism, Paul teaches that through this ritual, we actually metaphorically go through everything that Christ went through himself, both in his life and his ministry. And what Paul is saying here is that the secret to understanding the Christian life lies in finding our identity in Christ. In other words, a Christian is someone who identifies primarily with Christ. So what is an identity then? Well, the most commonly heard terms in identity are often a combination words like such as ethnic identity or national identity. But identity is actually more than that. According to the Collins Dictionary of Sociology, identity is the qualities, beliefs, personal traits, appearance, and or expressions that characterizes, characterizes a person or a group. So what does it mean? Well, firstly, as you can see from this definition, identity goes beyond mere behavioral. For example, you can't just chuck some shrimps on a barbie and call yourself Australian. You ha actually have to feel Australian to be an Australian. Secondly, an identity is a nuanced thing. There is no one thing that makes you instantly go, aha, that is an Australian. No, this is actually a whole collection of things. It's nuanced. 
Lastly, and the most importantly, identity gives you your life meaning. It gives you a sense of purpose. Because when you identify with a group or a person, their purpose becomes yours. And it's for this very powerful reason that almost everyone in the world bases their lives on some kind of identity. Now, at this point, uh, you might object to this and say, oh, actually, no, no, mate, no. I'm an individual. Uh, I think for myself, and I'm, I only live for myself, thank you very much. I don't let anyone else determine my life's purposes and meaning. Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever met guys who have got like, alternative-tasting music, and then you met some other guys who also do that, and they're all exactly the same? <laughs> have you ever met people who are highly individualistic, and yet they're individualistic in exactly the same ways? That's exactly how identity works, guys. Very few people decide to take on an identity. An identity happens subconsciously, covertly, and gradually. And politicians know exactly this. What will be the first institutions that a political party would take over once they realize they're in control, guys? Apart from the military, it'll be schools and the media. Because that way, their identity and ideology will become the air we breathe. So where does your primary identity lie? Or who or what group do you most identify with? Is it belonging to a particular group at school or work? Is it living in the right suburbs or in the best house? Or is it being a member of a family or a parent to a child? In verses 1 to 4, what Paul says here is that when someone becomes a Christian, their primary identity changes from elsewhere to Christ, so that they no longer see themselves primarily as an Australian, or middle class, or a family member, but a Christ follower. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of Matthew. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn, turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What Jesus and Paul is saying here is that the Christian life requir- requires a radical reshifting of one's, one's identity so that whatever previously defined you shall no longer be your primary identity. Your primary identity is in Christ. And that's where people like Russ Buton get it wrong about the Christian life. Because they see Jesus as a tool, a transaction, a genie in a bottle kind of thing for the problem of sin. Yet they fail to see him as the way or the life to follow. And secondly, um, we're going to move on to the second point. Is that So if identifying with Jesus is so important in the Christian life, why don't more people have this identity then? One of the, the things that you realize when you study history or sociology is that people who fit this description of a Christian has never accounted for the majority of the population. Anywhere in the world. 
Even back in the days when everyone in Europe was supposed to be a Christian of some kind, most people treated Christianity as belonging to a certain club, or a certain culture, or a certain ethnic group. But very few people identified primarily with Jesus Himself. Why is that? It's because there's a cost to it. It's because there's a price. To be paid for actually identifying with Christ. So, what is this price? We'll have a look. The first price happens naturally when you start to develop a deep union with someone else, when their purposes and honor and concerns become ours. And the deeper the identity, the greater the bond. Have a look at verse five. Paul says, "For if we have been united with him in a death like this." We will certainly be united with him in a re- resurrection like like his.、And、there's quite a few、um, in this verse to unpack. Actually, firstly, Paul uses、uh, the word that Paul uses in "united with him," which he used twice. Is it literally refers to the biological joining of of wounds or the fusing of bones here? So that is how deeply our identifying、uh, our identity in Christ is supposed to be. And then he he says like his twice. Now scholars often disagree on what this likeness is about, but it's probably because identity is always holistic. It's always nuanced. It's psychological. Yes, it's physical. Yes, is it transcendent? Is it transcendental? Yes, it is. It's all of that and more. It is to be experienced and gradually understood over the course of a Christian's life. Between and 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 that's meant to be understood between the times of Christ's death and His resurrection. Therefore, since Christians have this incredibly deep identity in Christ, it should overflow to all of our areas, all of the areas of our lives. I remember I became a, I became a Christian、um, about a year before I started working.、Uh, I was I used to work in an IT office as a programmer.、Um, Uh, and at that workplace,、uh, a steady stream of profanity would flow out of the mouth of my coworkers, and that included profaning the name of Jesus. Now, just a few years back, I was exactly like them, but something had started changing in me. It started annoying me that they were profaning Christ's name. So much so that I felt like I had to do something about it. So one day, I approached my managers. I said, "Look, I don't want to be a prude, but I don't think it's fair that we're only using Jesus's name in vain. There's plenty of well-known religions out there. There's Allah, there's Buddha, there's even Hare Krishna. Can we at least treat them all equally?" Well, they were like very apologetic about it. It it didn't stop them from profaning Christ's name, but it did start. Making them apologize for it every time they do it. So, why do I do that? It's because now Christ felt like he's part of my family, and when they profane Christ's name, it's almost as if they're profaning the name of my parents. So that's why I did it. And the second price we pay for identifying with Christ is death to self. And based on the natural flow of the argument developing verse five, Paul declares in the following verse, in、uh, verse six, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here, the old self refers to the life that we had before Christ, the old flesh, in another word. And Paul tells that the old way of life, or the old nature, has already been crucified with Jesus. What is the purpose of this? And he says here, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here he uses the word, be done away with. This is referring to uh, the rendering of something idle, or making somebody something idle, making it inactive. And the fact that Paul teaches, uh, and using the, the subjunctive sense of this word, it means, um, it, it means that it's, it's meant to be a process. It's not meant to be something that can just be done once for all. And theologians call this process sanctification, which means a Christian who now identifies with Jesus will, will gradually grow further and further away from the old ways of self-gratification and sin and more and more into Christ-likeness. And this is supposed to impact every part of our being. Our ethics, our goals, our worldviews, how we think, how we view money, career, and pleasure, everything. I hope you're shocked by this, guys. Because you should be. Because this is the number one reason why most people do not identify with Christ. Um, if you can um, show the next slide. Yeah, one of our ministries um, in Taiwan is to teach uh, students that are going on mission, uh, who are preparing to go to frontier missions, how to study culture and how to study people in a meaningful way. Um, so we teach them how to um, uh, do field research, and then based on that, uh, write uh, systematic descriptions of what they believe in. So a group of students of mine went to um, uh, interview uh, a whole, whole lot of temples in Taiwan. There's actually a lot of temples in Taiwan. And, and they um, made Taiwanese folk religion the subject matter to study. Um, so they interview people working in the temples or people who are a part of the temple. So they asked them, what is your impression of Christianity? And this is what they said. The word they use in Chinese is called ba dao, which basically, if you understood that, it means aggressive or overbearing or dictatorial. And then they asked them to elaborate on that a little bit. And, basically, and this is what they said. They said, look, our gods exist to serve us. When we give them the gifts, the gods are there to bless us. Our religion might cost us time and money, but they don't demand us to change our lives. And yet the Christian God does. And that's why I'm not interested in Christianity. Now think about that. I, I, I think this is a remarkably astute understanding of Christianity from the perspective of non-Christians. And if you were to ask an average Australian, would you prefer the gods of Taiwan or the God of the Bible? Which one would they choose? But is that a good thing? It, to have gods that only exist to bless? Let's imagine that if there isn't a God that demands change, what if all you get is Taiwanese folk religion? What would the God say about domestic violence, which Taiwan has a lot of? What would the God say about corruption, which 
politicians everywhere seem to be very good at. Now, which God would you prefer, especially if you're on the receiving end of such? You see, a God that doesn't demand holistic change is a powerless God. And in the words of the famous British atheist Bertrand Russell, a God that doesn't deserve to be worshipped. Lastly, our identity in Christ isn't, about, isn't just about dying to our old way of life and the systems attached to it. It's about attaining a new life as well. You see, it's not just that an identity in Christ carries a price. Every identity on earth carries with it stipulations and rules. For example, if your national identity is Australian, that means you have to do, you, you, that means you can't just do whatever you want, or else you'll be put in jail. You have to pay your taxes. If you're part of a social group and you don't adhere to their rules, you'll be kicked out. Every identity on earth has a price and a prize dynamic to it. And many of these identities expect a lot from you. Some of these even expect you to be willing to give your life to defend it. Yet the prize you get for these identities are just most, most of the time it's just meh. In case you're not in IT, it means like so-so. <laughs> for some, the prize is a passport. For others, it's social acceptance. But we often devote our entire lives to pursuing these identities. But an identity in Christ is different. Have a look at verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. An identity in Christ means that just as he rose from the dead and therefore can never die again, we too will one day be clothed with the imperishable. Compare that to every other identity you have. A national identity in the best country on the planet will not give you an eternity in heaven. A social identity that guarantees acceptance and privileges will at most last a few years. And you have to work very, very hard to maintain these identities. Yet, an identity in Christ is completely free. You cannot earn it by paying taxes or work very hard in getting accepted. It transcends all human boundaries. You can be rich or poor, Asian or Australian, cool or dorky, and it lasts forever, beyond this lifetime, into eternity. Now, I think this is great news, guys, especially for all the people who struggle to fit into a group. For example, just by looking at you, I know that many of you probably grew up in a similar setting to I was. I was born in a country, and I grew up in Australia. We are what sociologists call third culture kids. We don't even know who to cheer for at the Olympics. Many of us were never part of a cool group at school or at work. Many of us struggle with who we are, where we belong, especially when we're teenagers. When we first arrived in Taiwan, we um, 
didn't want to buy new things, so I would shop around for second-hand um, stuff, and my fans, and not clothes, <laughs> but just second-hand goods. goods. Um, it was on one of those trips that I met an, American, an, an Asian-American who came to Taiwan looking for his roots. So I asked him, did you find it? He shook his head and said, no. He said that when he was in America, he never felt like he fitted into the American culture. And yet, when he came to Taiwan, he didn't feel Asian enough either. So I shared with him about the struggles that I had growing up in China and Australia. And, I, and it wasn't until that I became a Christian that I realized that I don't have to define myself according to my citizenship in a nation state anymore. I don't have to play this game anymore because now my primary identity is in Christ. How do I get an identity in Christ? Well, you get this by realizing that Christ first identified with you. Have a look at verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to Christ. So he lives to God. What does this verse mean? Have a look at the next, next slide. In the prologue uh, of the Gospel of John, um, John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And Jesus is that Word. Everything was made through Him, and yet He identified so much with us that He, become, he became a person through the incarnation. In the world of cross-cultural missions, we say, if you respect the culture, you learn our language. But here, Jesus didn't just learn our language. He became one of us, flesh and blood. That is how highly God considered us. And yet it is on the cross that Jesus showed his ultimate identification. Have a look at the next slide. The writer of Hebrews wrote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, to, to, empathize, to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In the Jewish tradition, a high priest is supposed to be the mediator between God and people, but Jesus not only mediated on behalf of us, he was also tempted and trialed by life just like us, and yet he withstood everything that Satan and the world could throw at him. He did not sin, not even once. But what did he get for this exemplary obedience, perfect obedience? What did he get in return for that? Insult, torture, and death. Because he took the weight of our disobedience upon him. That's the extent that Christ wanted to identify with us. In the words of Romans 6.10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. You see, you only get the prize of the Christian, Christian identity because Jesus paid for the price of the identity for, by himself. And the reason he rose again is to defeat death once for all. And so that God's Holy Spirit can fully identify with us by living in us. And when this happens, nothing else can separate us from the love of God.
that is in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul used a biological term to describe the union between Christ and us in verse 5. It's like the Holy Spirit has become part of our whole being. Flesh of flesh, blood of blood, spirit of spirit. And that's why a Christian is eager to imitate Christ, eager to say no to sin, because the Holy Spirit now lives in us. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that we'll grow day by day into Christ's likeness. So how do I know that my identity is in Christ? When I think of those who um, got their identity in Christ, I often think of two characters from the Bible. Have a look at the next. Um, on the left, we've got the impressive Judas Iscariot. And on the right, we've got the sneaky Nicodemus. Now, who is Judas? He is somebody who followed Christ for three years. Someone who's seen Jesus up close and personal. He is without doubt, full of gifts and talents. I'm sure he knows how to talk the Christian talk. He's somebody who looked every bit like the real Christian. Baptized, grew up in a Christian family, fifth generation. So much so that when Jesus broke the news to his disciples at the Last Supper, that one of them was going to betray him, there's not a single disciple who went to Judas and said, Ha! I knew it was you. No, they all went, Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Who is Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus, according to biblical description of him, has always been sneaky. He, uh, in, in John chapter 3, he went to Jesus at night so that others wouldn't notice that he did that. In John chapter 7, he sneakily tried to protect Jesus from unfair accusations by other Pharisees. Then, in John chapter 19, after Jesus died, he sneakily helped to prepare his body by donating 50 kilos of spices. As far as I know, Nicodemus has never left his social religious identity as a Pharisee. He never called himself as a Christian. Yet if I were to ask you, which one of the two looked like the real follower of Jesus? Which one? Well, I think most of you would probably say Nicodemus was probably the real believer. And the early church would agree. And they called him Saint Nicodemus. You will not find Saint Judas, according to the earlier church. So, how do I know if my identity is in Christ? Here's a simple checklist. Does my affection for Christ grow daily? Secondly, do I have a deep affinity with him? Do I see him as family? Is my heart full of joy when I imitate him? And lastly, do I desire to grow into his likeness? If you tick yes to all of this, if this is you, even if you haven't been baptized, even if you're not a member of this church, I recommend you to have a chat with one of the pastors because it is possible that you're ready to enter into a relationship with Christ. On the other hand, for those of us who have been Christians for a while, it's important to know that any identity presupposes growth. It's never a static thing. 
So how do I make sure that I'm growing in my identity in Christ? I've got the next thing. Um, firstly, an identity in Christ presupposes knowing Christ. We're supposed to know who we're following, right? So there's a knowledge component to this. We need to continually grow in our knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done and what the Bible says about him. As John Piper once said, it's extremely difficult for a Christian to grow if they don't read or listen or have some form of Bible intake. Secondly, it's not enough to just have knowledge. We need to meditate on it. And what do I mean by this? Well, let me use a bad example to illustrate this. Now, as many of you know, Sian and I have been living overseas for over about 11 years now. Uh, we've lived in two countries, uh, moved houses more times than we could count. Uh, so it's not an understatement to say that you know, our life hasn't been as stable as the average Australian life. Often I find myself especially prior to returning to Australia, this uncontrollable urge to look up domain.com.au and to look at properties that we would like to live in one day. Sometimes I fall asleep dreaming that we're living in this brick gable with a backyard where I can have charcoal grills that I can um, cook my steaks on. I, I, I dream about my kids going to a stable school in the neighborhood so that they don't have to struggle with this two-language, third-cultural kid business. What am I doing? I'm meditating on the Australian dream, right? What if, what if I apply the same energy and willingness to meditating on Christ? Now, you might not be meditating on the Australian dream, but I'm sure there are things that you, you fall asleep thinking. What if we apply the same energy to our identity in Christ? Lastly, do what pleases him. Because the Christian identity isn't just a list of intellectual facts and feelings. It's full of wonderful experiences. And you can only access these through obedience, through action. And when you do that, you'll find that the life that Christ gives is full of joy and wonder. It is mightily exciting. So I hope you will find that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that um, not only did you save us on the cross by paying for the price of this identity, but you've also called us to follow you in this identity. Help us to find joy in following you. Help us to... Um, yeah, just mobilize all of our senses, mobilize all of our being so that we can see you in us and see you uh, in our lives, Lord. Help us to grow in this identity uh, so that we can flourish in both life and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.